0: Luke chapter 17. Taken a bit of a detour from Luke. We had a few weeks off. We are getting back into it. If you remember, we had a couple of weeks on the subject of forgiveness, and that was. Verses one through four, now we're going to see verse five and six is going to be our main focus, but I'm going to start in verse three. Hebrews, or sorry, Luke 17:3, Jesus says, "Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying." I repent, you must forgive him. The Apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Religious polls in America over the last few decades have revealed a steady increase of people identifying as atheist or agnostic. Atheism is, of course, the belief that there is no God, and agnosticism is the belief that things pertaining to the supernatural are unknown and unknowable. The trajectory of this unbelief is due, in part, to the widespread acceptance of Darwinian evolution. The idea that life came about by natural processes and all the diversity of life that we see in the world came through genetic mutation and natural selection. Evolution has become the secular creation story. It is taught in our public schools. It is assumed by the major branches of science. And along with this evolutionary worldview is a kind of intellectual arrogance. When faith in God is presented as a reasonable explanation for life, it is mocked as a pie in the sky kind of wishful thinking. In fact, a saying has developed among skeptics that you will see from time to time, and that is, You have faith, we have facts. This saying is meant to communicate that faith involves believing in things that aren't real. That faith is where you make conclusions apart from reality. Or that faith is something that ignores or disregards the evidence. Faith is seen as juvenile. Faith is that which should have been abandoned long ago because we have now discovered the truth of our existence. The idea of God was reasonable when man lived in the dark ages, but now we have the enlightenment of modern science, and therefore belief in God is not necessary. Faith is what people do to make themselves feel better about the universe. Blindly trusting that there's something out there that they can grasp onto to give them meaning and purpose. These are the kinds of arguments you might hear. This increasing trend in unbelief is also due to a handful of influential authors in our day, authors who are critical of religious belief and whose writings regularly make the New York Times bestseller list. A number of these books have been published and they've become so popular that some have called this, new move, this movement the New Atheism. So there's a label for this particular group of authors and this sort of resurgence in unbelief and it's called New Atheism. It's called New because these men hold that not only is faith in God irrational, but that it should not be tolerated. It's a more aggressive kind of atheism. It's a more evangelistic kind of atheism. In fact, their absolute allegiance to evolutionary theory has a very religious kind of feel to it. They have their holy book, Darwin's Origin of Species. They have their priests, those white-robed PhDs of evolutionary biology, and they have their prophets those churning out best-selling books to proclaim to the masses the truth about God but he is not there in fact one of their false pro- one of their prophets said this faith is the surrender of the mind it's the surrender of reason it's the surrender of the only thing that makes us different from other mammals Religion is poison because it asks us to give up our most precious faculty, which is that of reason, and to believe things without evidence. It then asks us to respect this, which it calls faith. Now certainly, Christianity is not built upon surrendering our intellect, and our faith is a response to evidence. We have the unmistakable evidence of a creator through the complexity and diversity of life which renders any evolutionary model absurd. We have historical figures who have communicated and demonstrated the unseen God. We have the very God of creation coming down to us himself who was publicly Received, who did public miracles, who was publicly tried, who was publicly executed, and who was publicly raised again. We have much more to stand upon than one who believes that everything came about by some huge cosmic accident without any foresight or purpose. If, if our creation story begins, in the beginning God created heaven, the heavens and the earth, Their creation story begins, in the beginning, there was nothing, and then it exploded. It's foolishness. It's unprovable. It's based on faith. But still, the accusations are made that what you believe is not consistent with how things really are, and the skeptics will continue to say they have facts, we have faith. But in reality, everyone lives by faith. The atheist is completely committed to his anti supernatural materialistic worldview. Guess what? By faith. In fact, he exercises just as much faith in his belief system as you do. He starts with the idea, the presupposition, there is no God. He goes out into the world and digs in the dirt. He has to make a, concoct a story about how all of this came to be without any kind of supernatural intervention. He constructs this theory that what we see in the diversity of creation and how, well, he wouldn't call it creation, but the diversity of, of, of life and how things change over time, we're just going to take that change and take it all the way back. And of course, that's going to take a lot of time, so it must be billions of years and so, billions and billions of years ago, all this stuff happened. And he has faith in his belief system just as much as you have faith in yours. In fact, every position in regard to origins is a faith position. No one saw what happened in the beginning And since no one was there, and we all have the same stuff to examine, we all have presuppositions on what we think happened. But my point is, both positions are faith positions. And I will go even further to say that living by faith is built into us and is possibly the most important aspect of our humanity. Not just the believer, but the unbeliever as well. Whether your faith is anchored in the God of the Bible or the sages of modern science, faith is a human characteristic that is unavoidable regardless of what you believe about our origins. We all live by faith every day of our lives, the atheist and the agnostic, both the religious and the non-religious. Faith governs every aspect of human life. Let me explain. When you wake up in the morning, you have faith that today will be relatively the same as yesterday. The sun will rise, gravity will maintain its precise pull upon the earth, and all the invisible laws that govern the universe will be in place as they have been before. We call that the uniformity of nature. By the way, Christians have an explanation for that. It's because God is sustaining all things. The atheist has no explanation for that. How does he know tomorrow is going to be the same as today? He cannot know. He can make presumptions, he can assume, but he cannot know. When you go to the cupboard to eat breakfast, you have faith that what is printed on the front of the box and what is written on the side of the box is what is contained in the box. You didn't see how that food was processed, You don't know what went into that to get to you. You have no idea if it's been contaminated or poisoned, but you go on eating it by faith without even thinking about it. When you take your vitamins, you have faith that the pills contain what is described and nothing else. In fact, the entire supplement industry depends on your faith. I take supplements every day. These little clear capsules with white powder in them. And I have no idea what's in there. Could be baby powder. Could be sand. But I look at the bottle and it says zinc or it says vitamin D or whatever. And I take it by faith. Now, it's true that some things you take have an effect. And you you know that if it's the thing or not, like a sleeping aid perhaps... But I would say most of the things that you take that have to do with nutrition, it's all by faith. In fact, I just bought a supplement that was advertised on my Facebook feed, and it was making all these kinds of claims, and I thought, yeah, I could use some of that and some of that, and I could, I just turned 50, I could use some improvement in that area. And so I read a few testimonies, and I completed the purchase, and now I'm taking this completely by faith. I have no idea if any of these things that were promised are actually going to be happening. I have no evidence, practically no evidence. These testimonies could be false. This company could be a sham. I've not read any relevant literature on the subject of this supplement. It's all by faith. How about when you go to the doctor and you get a prescription for some kind of ailment? You have faith in the doctor that he knows what he's talking about. You have faith that the pharmacy put in the right medication. You have faith that such medicine is helpful and not harmful. You get in your car. You drive to church. You have faith that you will make it there safely, just like you've done many times before. Even though you know hundreds of people die every day in this country, In car accidents, but you're trusting that you will not join that statistic and you have faith that you are going to make it here safely and make it home safely. Let's say you are going to travel somewhere, you go to the airport and you go through security and you have faith that these machines that they scan you with are not infusing you with all kinds of radiation that's going to give you cancer later in life. You're trusting the people operating the machines. You're trusting the developers of the machines. You're trusting all of the researchers related to those fields. You don't know any of those people. You don't know anything about this. You board your plane. You take your seat. You have faith that someone behind that cockpit door knows how to fly this thing. You have faith that the person up there is not incompetent or inebriated. Having just gone through a couple years of COVID-19 panic, we have seen remarkable faith put on display all around us. Millions of people putting their faith in a surgical mask. Some having so much faith in it that they drive by themselves without anybody else in the car wearing it. They want to feel safe and they want to feel protected and they put this mask on and the government says as long as you do that you're going to be safe and protected and a lot of people said I want to feel safe and protected and so they put on those masks everywhere they went even when they were alone because they had faith that it was somehow helping them. Some people have faith that the vaccine they received to present infection is going to benefit them Others have faith that avoiding the vaccine is going to benefit them. It's all faith. Now, again, some people might research it and say, well, I'm making my my conclusions based on things I've studied. That's cool. I'm not arguing that you don't do any research about anything. But my point is you are having some kind of faith to trust the article, to trust the Ph.D., to trust the person who wrote it. It's trust, it's trust, it's trust everywhere all the way around. People operate by faith every day, all day. We are just so accustomed to it, we don't call it that. And, and we don't even think about it because if you thought about every single thing you did, you would end up in a rubber room with a straitjacket. I believe God has made us with an underlying kind of faith that is a basis for our life in this world that allows you to live without falling to absolute pieces. And I just gave you a few things. You could list thousands of things that you do every day. It's what we do all day long. Now, with that in mind, here's mankind's problem. Mankind's problem, generally speaking, is that he has faith in every area of life except the most important. Living out his life by faith in relationship to God. The reason he will have faith in anything and everything except that is the most essential part of his design is because of this thing called sin. And sin blinds us to that which is most important. So he can walk through this life and have faith thousands of times during the day But in the most important area of his existence, he doesn't have faith. Or he suppresses the truth about that. Faith is what joins us to the divine. Faith puts us in a right relationship with our Creator. And rather than it being a blind leap in the dark, as if we just all sat around and made up some kind of God... Faith is a response to the God who has made Himself known. So faith is essential in us knowing God. It gets us into that relationship and faith is also the machinery of living out that relationship. Faith is not a momentary event where you express a one-time trust and then you go on living a life apart from God. But rather, faith becomes the daily focus of the believer in Christ so that what you say and do and think is all brought into line with who God is. So now, you still practice faith when you take your supplements and eat your cereal and get in your car and go to the airport. But you're doing it with faith in God going through your life with Him. So you're exercising faith in all of those ways like the unbeliever does, but this time you have the biggest, most wonderful aspect of faith, which is God Himself. Now what happens when the demands of living out your faith appear to be impossible? What happens when we encounter the words of God... And the requirements of God, in the midst of our ordinary life, and we feel an overwhelming sense of inadequacy. We feel that our faith, while it's there, is insufficient. This was the consensus of the twelve. Jesus had called these men out of the world to follow Him and these were the very men who were with Him throughout His entire ministry. They heard the Sermon on the Mount. They were taught the parables and their meanings. They understood the weight of their calling. And in this portion of Luke, after Jesus teaches on how we are to forgive as God forgives, these men become greatly discouraged. It's almost as if this teaching on forgiveness is just the one thing that pushes them over the edge. Jesus says they are to forgive their brother seven times in the same day, which is symbolic to mean limitless number of times. And their response in verse 5 says it all. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now, I thought it was interesting that this is the only time in the Gospels that all of the apostles respond in the very same way. It's true. You can look it up. if You've got Bible software or you can go on Google and type in, in quotes, the apostles said, and it only appears one time that all of them said this in unison, and that is in Luke 17.5. So they all had the same response to what Jesus just taught on forgiveness and they said, increase our faith. We need more than what we've been given to carry out what you require. That's what they're saying. Now I wonder if you have ever felt that way. You consider what God has called you to you recognize your inadequacy and your immaturity and your lack of discernment. You recognize that spiritually speaking, you are not where you should be. And you come to the conclusion that you do not have enough of what is required to live out the Christian life, which is faith. I wonder if you've ever felt that way after reading certain verses. I know I have. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Are you kidding? Can you fulfill the command where God says, Be holy as I am holy? Or as Jesus taught here, can you really forgive as God forgives? Now, I imagine the disciples hearing these things for the first time were troubled by it. Imagine living in a world where the predominant thinking, even in religion, is that you are to forgive, that's good, but you know, the, if they do it again, you're, you're not obligated to forgive them anymore. I mean, you gave them a chance and they blew their chance, and so you're, you, you wash your hands of it. I mean, that's the predominant thinking in the culture. That's the predominant thinking in religion. You don't have to forgive again and again and again and again. I mean, you might feel generous one day and forgive a second time and just think of yourself as so good. But five times, seven times, 70 times. The only way to accomplish that, it would seem as if they had more faith. Now, the disciples are a wonderful case study because they represent how you and I often think. They are very ordinary people. Have you noticed that? They're just very ordinary. Tax collectors and fishermen and political zealots and farmers and super, super ordinary. And so, when you're reading about the disciples and how they respond, don't shake your head and say, Psh, I wouldn't have done that, Peter. I wouldn't. It's like, yeah, you probably would have. So, they usually respond in a way that's close to how we might respond. That's, I think, that way at least. Now, I don't think their response was all that bad. In fact, I found three things. This is not an outline or anything, but just as a side note, I found three things they got right in their response, increase our faith. One, they recognized that faith was already present in them. In other words, they weren't asking to be saved. They weren't asking for the initial amount of faith. They they recognized there there was faith there. Secondly, they recognized that the faith they possess comes from God. I mean, why would they ask Jesus to increase their faith unless they thought He was the source of their faith and then the third thing i think they got right is that they went to the right place to find it they felt an inadequacy within them to carry out the commands of god they didn't run to the local guru down the street they didn't go to the self-help section of barnes and noble they went to the lord so those are good things that they got right But whatever they got right was soon eclipsed by what they got wrong because as Jesus points out, they don't need more faith. That's going to be the the whole point. Moms, you don't need more faith. Husbands, you don't need more faith. Employees with difficult bosses, you don't need more faith. Single person, young person, financially struggling person. You don't need more faith. What Jesus is going to tell us is that you just need to apply the faith that you already have. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, if this kind of imagery sounds familiar, we saw it back in Luke chapter 13, although he had a different application for it. But just to refresh you, a mustard seed is incredibly small. Think of a sesame seed on the sesame seed bun that you get. Tiny, tiny. And back in Luke 13, he's talking about how that seed is planted and it grows into this massive, massive plant. Different picture here. In this illustration, he's saying you're going to take this teeny tiny, seemingly insignificant, sesame-sized seed and you are going to do incredible things with it. lest you think the little itty-bitty faith that you have is worthless, or lest you think you are inadequate, Jesus is going to teach that if you have that much, just that much, you can do world-changing kinds of things. He says you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, this is the only reference of a mulberry tree in the Bible. And it's very likely that Jesus was pointing to one when He taught. He would point to different things in creation and use them as spiritual points. And so, He probably points to this tree. And it's an interesting choice because this tree has a very deep and complex root system. The mulberry tree does. Some trees, their roots go out very shallow and they're easy to unearth, but the mulberry tree can live as long as 600 years, and in an arid place like the Middle East, its roots spread out very, very far and very, very deep looking for water, and over hundreds and hundreds of years, it becomes this nearly impossible thing to remove you got one of these things in your backyard that you want to get rid of forget about it, okay? So the picture here is this embedded, immovable object that is nearly impossible to displace. And Jesus says you could move that sucker in a second. Not if you had a mountain-sized amount of faith. Not if you had an ocean-sized amount of faith. But if you had this teeny-weeny, itty-bitty, sesame-sized seed kind of faith? The kind of faith that you exercise every day in all other aspects of your life. The kind of faith where you have this bold confidence where you pull the box of cereal off the shelf and you don't even think about what could possibly go wrong. The kind of faith that assures you that gravity will not cease or that the sun will come up in the morning or that the food at the restaurant is safe or that there's a pilot behind that cockpit door. The kind of ordinary faith you practice thousands of times every day, but this time it's placed in the hands of the invisible God. Now, does Jesus really mean that Christians should be walking around uprooting this tree and that? Or, as He uses elsewhere, taking this mountain and moving it to another spot. Does Jesus really expect His disciples to have that kind of power evidenced in our lives? Well, I hope you recognize that Us moving mountains and trees around is not the will of God. God has not called us to be the kingdom of God on earth by rearranging the earth's topography. I mean, what kind of devastation would that cause if you moved a mountain? You never see Jesus or Paul or any other biblical figure demonstrating their faith by moving around trees or mountains. Can we all agree upon that? Yeah. But rather, Jesus is using a silly picture. He's using hyperbole, exaggeration for the sake of making a point to describe the power of genuine faith that even someone who has a little bit of faith can do extraordinary things. Not because they're great, but because faith joins them to the greatness of God. In other words, it's not that we are equipped with superpowers, like we're walking around like the Fantastic Four, having all of this power over creation, but that faith gives us access to God, and God is unlimited in what He can do and what He can accomplish through ordinary people like you. Probably the most tree-uprooting, mountain-moving works that we see through ordinary people is how God uses them to spread the life-saving message of the Gospel. God's plan to transform the world involves you... Loving and engaging people who have deep, embedded, sinful roots that go all the way down to death. And God uses people like you and your faith to transplant them from death to life. God uses your ordinary faith, that tiny, little, teeny, weeny seed of faith, to change how a person sees the world and sees themselves in the world. You possess these words of life and God uses those words to uproot someone from the broad road of destruction to the narrow path of life. And you say, well, I'm not doing that. I don't have the power to do that. Exactly. The power is not in you. It's in God. God is the one who, spiritually speaking, moves mountains, uproots mulberry trees. And He does it through his, the faith of His servants and believing that He can do it. Maybe you know the name Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was a rare kind of Christian because he was a man of great Faith. and jim elliot along with his friends moved to ecuador in the middle of a jungle to share the gospel with an unreached people group and after many days of giving them gifts they camped out on a nearby beach and they finally made contact with this notoriously savage people who are known for hostility and violence and if you know the account of Jim Elliot and the other men, they were tragically killed, brutally murdered by these people they were trying to reach. And so what's left in the wake of that is their wives and their children in the middle of Ecuador, in the most remote place you can imagine, and what are they going to do Now? And one of the widows, Elizabeth Elliot, along with Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, decided to stay and immerse themselves in the language of the Aucus, this tribe. And they asked the Lord to provide a way for them to make contact. Imagine their fear. Imagine their sense of inadequacy. Jim was the one with the great faith. Not Elizabeth. And now he's gone. And here these, wom- these women took this mustard s- seed of faith and they were determined to live out what was God's plan from the beginning, which was to reach this people group. So after two years of studying with local tribes and being led by God's Spirit, they went back into the jungle where their husbands were killed. And they were able to meet with a couple of these people Tribal women, and they built a relationship with them, and eventually they were invited to meet the tribe, and the tribe was willing to listen to their message. And they not only heard the message about this God who saves the wicked, but they saw a living illustration of Him in the lives of these women. That this God who they told them saves their enemies, saw that these women risking their lives came to reach out to their enemies and through the faith of these women and the powerful message of the gospel the aucas became began coming to Christ and eventually the entire tribe was transformed all of their murder and hostility and malice was uprooted and it was cast into the sea roots and all And so God takes this handful of women who were thrust into a role they had not chosen in the midst of the most painful and trying time of their life with such great grief and loss, and they took their teeny-weeny, sesame-sized seed of faith and they changed the spiritual landscape of that part of the world, hopefully forever. plucking up the kingdom of darkness and casting it into the sea. Now, ordinary people like you and me often don't see these big radical kinds of changes. Most of us will not have to apply that mustard seed faith to uproot a village or a community. But what God does over time with that mustard seed of faith in you is still remarkable. God can take someone like you who does not love very naturally and, to draw upon the context of Jesus and the disciples, use that mustard seed of faith to forgive your neighbor, forgive that person who's hurt you, forgive that family member who has over and over again burned that bridge with you and give you the faith to forgive not once, but even seven times in a day. God can take a tiny amount of faith and through that faith, uproot a deep system of bitterness that's within you and uproot it and cast it into the sea and give you a heart of love for your neighbor. You don't need more faith. You just need to apply the faith that you already have. Faith in the God who moves mountains. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, please help us to walk out the faith that You have put in us that we would apply it That we would boldly apply it. That we would walk in faith the way we have such confidence in other things in this life that we don't even think about every day. That we would have as much faith in what you have said as what our doctor says or the talking head on TV. That we would have such faith in you, Lord, that we would be able to accomplish the impossible, not because of our greatness, but because of yours. Please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.